my first semester, freshman year at Mississippi State, I had to take a class called College Algebra. One of those core classes that everybody has to take. Uh, it had 200 plus students all in one big room. So I had this assumption going in that this was going to just be a, a piece of cake. I mean, I've taken math classes every year up to this point, and I'm kind of math minded to begin with. I like crunching numbers in my head. College algebra, that'll be a cinch. <laughs> and then I got my first test grade back. And it quickly dawned on me that I had taken for granted what I thought I knew, that I had made assumptions that were wrong, that this class was actually quite difficult, especially for a person like me who wasn't giving his best effort. <laughs> And so then I had to spend the rest of the semester, honestly, just trying to dig myself out of the hole that I had put myself in because I just didn't, I, I made an assumption that, uh, that turned out to be flatly wrong. Y'all, now there was one good thing that came out of that class. Uh, sitting about 15 rows behind me over my right shoulder, the first time I ever laid eyes on a young lady named Jennifer Hermits, whose last name is now York. I met my wife in college algebra. So my performance was not great in that class, but the outcome uh, was life-changing and wonderful. It all worked out for the best. Uh, well, y'all, as we look at John chapter 3 today, in John 3, Jesus has an extended conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is the kind of guy that if anybody knew his stuff, if anybody would have been on kind of the upper crust of the religious system of the day, it would have been him. If you were going to have a Bible drill team, you'd want Nicodemus on your team. He was not only a Pharisee, which meant he was part of the, the, uh, the most diligent, devoted sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, but he was also a man who sat on the Sanhedrin, only 70 Jewish men sat on the Sanhedrin. It was a council that was essentially the supreme court of Israel. So Nicodemus was not just devoted and diligent to his faith and to the word of God, the Old Testament, but he was also a ruler of the people. So we might think in, in this conversation as it begins, well, maybe Nicodemus has a thing or two to teach to this poor carpenter from Nazareth. But in fact, it's the other way around. Jesus is going to show Nicodemus that all of his assumptions, all of his assumptions about God, about how life works, about what God is up to in the world, uh, Nicodemus was, uh, was in the most essential way, Nicodemus was wrong. And, and Jesus was going to show him the truth. And so, y'all, as we read this today, uh, we get to look over John's shoulder and, and watch this conversation take place. But it's important for us to recognize Jesus is not talking to Nicodemus only and exclusively. He's always talking to us as well. And so this is a word for us, really one of the most precious sections in all the Bible today. And we'll see why as we go. This is John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Now, y'all, usually whenever Pharisees show up in the Gospels, they're antagonistic toward Jesus. Uh, they're, they're always accusing him, mocking him, uh, trying to, to trap him somehow in his own words. But that, that doesn't really appear to be the case here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and it seems like he's genuinely curious. Uh, we don't know what his motives are, but I mean, he calls Jesus rabbi. That was a sign of respect. He didn't demean Jesus. Uh, he says, it's clear from your signs that God must be with you, perhaps in the same way God was with someone like Moses or David or Jeremiah, you know, the, the great heroes of the faith. Nicodemus is, he's getting off on the right foot here, at least apparently. But y'all, there's something that we saw last week at the very end of chapter 2, right before this account begins. Jesus was uh, performing signs, and John tells us that people were believing in him. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. Jesus knew whether their faith was genuine or not. And then immediately after that statement comes this account, the, the story of Nicodemus. So on our part, we, can't, we cannot perceive all of the motivations that are going on behind the scenes, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows what he needs to hear. And Jesus cuts right to the chase. There's no small talk here in John chapter 3. Jesus says in verse 3, he responds and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, y'all, everything Jesus says is equally true all the time. But whenever we see a sentence begin like this, truly, truly, uh, this is Jesus' way of drawing special attention to his words. This is a, this is a point of emphasis here. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, that, that phrase, born again, can also be translated, born from above. And it's meant to draw us back in our minds to what John says in chapter 1, as he is declaring the ministry of Jesus uh, to the world. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. And so, y'all, this is, this is what we call the new birth, to be born of God, to be born again, born from above. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So that phrase, the kingdom of God, or seeing the kingdom of God, is, is really just being saved, having eternal life. That's what it means to see or enter the kingdom. Y'all, the kingdom of God, it's, it's God's eternal rule over his people, his covenant people, where, the where those who love and trust God uh, spend eternal life with God. That's what Jesus means by the kingdom. And the kingdom is not something that just happens eventually one day we enter in, but no, Jesus is implying that we can enter in in the here and now and begin an eternal life relationship with God. But unless you're born again, you won't see it. You won't enter in. 
Now, y'all, it's, it's not apparent to us on the surface. But in verse 3, that little bitty sentence, that short statement Jesus just made, he is demolishing Nicodemus's view of life. All in one little sentence. It's like Jesus has a sledgehammer in hand and he's walking into a china shop. He knocks it all down. And here's how. See, y'all, among the Jews, the dominant belief was, yes, there is a future kingdom of God and a future resurrection of God's people from the dead. And that is a birthright to those who are of the people of Israel. Salvation belongs to us, they thought. To be a Jew, to be born a Jew, meant that you were an inheritor of God's kingdom by birth. That was your right. We are the sons of Abraham, they said. We are God's chosen people, and therefore we are in the kingdom. By default, that's our right. That's our lot in life. Unless you were especially wicked and you forfeited your place in the kingdom, everybody got in. Now, especially a man like Nicodemus, who wasn't just an average Israelite, but a teacher, a ruler of the people, the upper crust. If anybody would have been an insider to that promise of the kingdom of God, it would have been him. And so Jesus is destroying that assumption when he says, no, your natural birth is of no avail. Only if you are born again, only if you are born from above, can you see the kingdom. You do not get in by virtue of your birthright, by virtue of your parents and your ancestry. You must be born again. Now, how do you think Nicodemus takes this? (laughs) He is, if not a little angry, he's certainly stunned and confused. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus says to Jesus, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. And that which has been born of the Spirit is Spirit. So we get a little bit of clarity here, a little bit of explanation. We see that Jesus is not talking about reincarnation, of actually physically being born again into the world. Jesus is not talking figuratively about a second chance in life, which is what a lot of people kind of naturally assume Christianity is, that God wipes the slate clean and gives you another go-around to do better next time, as if that would do us any good. No, Jesus says what is born of the flesh is flesh. Human nature can only produce more of human nature. That's why back in chapter 1, John tells us the new birth is not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. But we are born of God. And Jesus says specifically, we are born of the Spirit. And therefore, what is born of the Spirit is Spirit. If we are born of the Spirit, we have a new nature entirely. 
not a revamped or improved human nature, but we are something new. We've been reborn. And so what Jesus is talking about is it's true spiritual transformation. There's a real transformation taking place that God is the author of, that God creates in us. Look again at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is really just restating what he already said in verse 3, just with a little more information. To be born again or born from above is to be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, what Jesus is talking about here is the fulfillment of the new covenant, that which God has already promised centuries ago to his people in the Old Testament. God is now producing or bringing about in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. So look back with me for just a moment at this scripture from Ezekiel 36. This is the promise of the new covenant. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. This is God telling us in advance what happens in salvation, what he's going to achieve in the new covenant. He will sprinkle clean water on you. He will cleanse you. That's a symbol of the purification of sin. That's what the water represents. And he will give you a new heart and he will put his spirit within you to ensure that you walk in loving obedience to him. That's the promise. And now Jesus makes this connection for us. You can only enter the kingdom. You can only have salvation if you are born of water and of the Spirit. God must cleanse you from your sin, and God must give you new birth through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be saved. That's what Nicodemus needed for himself, and that's what you and I need as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul echoes this in his words from Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. In Titus 3, uh, Paul says, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according with his great mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's washing, cleansing, and there's indwelling. There's new birth by the Spirit of God. Now, in the case of Nicodemus, who's hearing all this for the first time, we shouldn't be too hard on him for the fact that he doesn't really understand what Jesus is saying. Y'all, I've been a Christian for 22 years, 
And what Jesus is saying is still very difficult for me to grasp and to pin down. It's got so many deep, wonderful layers to it. Uh, and there's mystery in it that, that, frankly, I'm not sure we'll ever fully know. Not perhaps until we uh, are with him in heaven. But Jesus doesn't take his foot off the gas here. Uh, Nicodemus is clearly confused. He's mystified. But Jesus doesn't stop and say, okay, give me your questions. Jesus doesn't stop and say, let me, let me explain this a little more simply. He keeps on pushing because there's something he wants this man to see, and he wants us to see it too. It's the absolute uniqueness of the salvation he's come to bring. Look with me again at verse 7 now. Do not be amazed, Jesus says, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. It seems like Jesus is making things more complicated, not less. But what's, what's going on right here? Y'all, God's Spirit, Jesus says, is like the wind. And there's an interesting play on words happening here. Jesus didn't speak Greek as far as we know, but John writes in Greek. And as he writes these words in Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. It's the word pneuma. Spirit and wind, breath, those are all the same words as they're written in Greek. And so there's a deliberate overlap that's happening right here. And y'all, Jesus' point is this. The wind blows where it wishes, and it's beyond our figuring out. You don't know where that wind has been. You don't really know where it's going. And you certainly cannot control it. You cannot direct its path. The wind is free in that sense. Now, we do hear its sound. We feel the effects of the wind. We can feel it on our face. We can see the trees rustling. We can see the leaves uh, tossed in the air and taken on by the wind. We know the effects are there, but the wind is not ours to harness. We can't control where it comes from or where it ends up. So is everyone, Jesus says, who has been born of the Spirit. That is to say, the new birth is of the Spirit. It's exclusively the work of the Spirit of God. We cannot cause it. We cannot control it. We cannot earn it. And ultimately, we can't really even explain it. You know, if you're a Christian, it's because at some point you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you considered it and you were convicted by it, you were convinced of its truthfulness, and you repented of your sins and you turned in trust to him. 100%. That's what happened. And yet, at the very same time, you were not the decisive cause of your salvation. The reason you are a Christian, the deeper and more ultimate reason, is that God has caused us to be born again, born from above by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a new life in the Spirit that God alone is able to produce. We cannot harness, manipulate, or even fully understand it. The wind blows where it wishes. So is the Spirit.
Now, Nicodemus, <laughs> well, let's just read it. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus responded and said to him, how can these things be? Now, don't, let's, again, any of us would have said the same thing, right? How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Uh, Nicodemus is flabbergasted, but Jesus rebukes him. Did you catch that? You're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't know these things? You should know this stuff. These are earthly things, I'm telling you. Meaning, this is simply the new covenant promise that's already been laid out for us in days gone past, the, in the Old Testament. What I've told you up to this point, it's, it's college algebra. This is core stuff. Jesus is maybe giving uh, language to it that is a little peculiar to Nicodemus, but he's simply talking about the fulfillment of the new covenant. God says, I will cleanse you with water, and I will make my spirit to dwell in you. That's what the new birth is. And yet, for Nicodemus, it's not, it's not merely intellectual. Jesus says it. It's the hardest thing in the world for a man like this to accept a salvation that comes not through birthright, that comes not through good works, but comes only by the grace of God. And that's what Jesus means when he says, The Son of Man has descended from heaven. Jesus alone is God, come from heaven to bring about the new birth. It's not just for Nicodemus to understand it intellectually. Jesus says you don't accept it. And that's the ultimate issue. And I'm the one come to give it. What a providential encounter right here, Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus did not stumble upon one of the disciples one day and say, hey, tell me about the guy you're following. He gets to speak to the man himself, and Jesus lays it out for him. I'm the one descended from heaven, not only to declare these things, but to bring them about. And how is Jesus going to do that? Well, that's the last thing he tells him, beginning in verse 14. How does the new covenant come to pass? Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Now, if you've been following along uh, in our Bible reading plan this year, you know what Jesus is referencing here. We read it just the other day. It's this very bizarre story from Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to try to give a very brief recap of it. The people in Numbers 21, the people of Israel, were sinning miserably again. And God brings judgment to the people in the form of poisonous snakes. Snakes flooded the land and they were biting the people. Now, oddly enough, the people repented, which is what we would tend to do 
if snakes started attacking us. They get the picture. They repent. And they beg Moses to intercede for them. Go to God, please, and tell him how sorry we are and ask him to be merciful. And here's what God says to Moses. I want you to make a snake out of bronze and attach it to a standard. Put this snake statue on a pole and then lift it up. And anyone who has been bitten, if they will look upon the snake, they will be healed. I told you that was bizarre. And y'all, I, I, I wish we had more time. This is really probably a sermon all by itself. There's so much we could say. But I want to make one quick point, one very important point of connection. In that story, God is bringing healing through judgment. He doesn't just bring healing from judgment. He brings healing through judgment. And here's what I mean. The snakes were God's means of judgment upon the people. The snakes were the problem. They were the judgment. And God says, lift up a bronze snake. Why not a statue of a bunny rabbit? I mean, why not lift up something that would communicate more tenderness and mercy and love? But no, in this case, God raises up an image of the curse in order to save people from the curse. The snakes were the problem. They were the judgment. I'm going to give you a picture of the judgment, but that's going to be, in this case, your healing, your salvation from that judgment. Now, why is that important? When Jesus, if, of all the things Jesus could have pulled from the Old Testament right here, why does he do this one? Why this story? Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Y'all, he's talking about the cross. The ultimate purpose for which Jesus came to be nailed to a standard and then raised up for all to see. What is the cross in this case? It's the picture of judgment. We know that the cross is the picture of God's grace, of course. But it's also the clearest picture of God's judgment. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, paid the penalty for all our sins. He had no sins of his own to pay for. He paid for ours instead. Jesus took upon himself God's judgment for sin. It was imputed to him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We're told in Galatians that Jesus became the curse for us. And so through his judgment on the cross, we are forgiven. By his wounds, we are healed. The bronze snake was a picture of the judgment that God graciously used to bring healing. The cross is the place where God's judgment was poured out so that our sins might be forgiven thanks to one who took our place. Y'all, the curse of sin is infinitely worse than a snake bite. What Jesus did is infinitely greater than the picture given to us 
in Numbers chapter 21. And that is because the grace of Jesus is infinitely greater than our sin. There is no amount of sin that Jesus cannot cover through his bloodshed on the cross. I will be lifted up, he says, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in me. Everyone who believes. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's not giving us a new law to follow. He's not adding something on top of our present way of life. No, he's graciously providing a new life altogether. And so listen, if, if you are religious like Nicodemus or like me, we can be honest enough to look at this scripture and to say, this is a hard pill to swallow because we recognize, I hope, what it really means. That we, there, there's not a single one of us that we are entitled to God's kingdom for any reason whatsoever. None of us gets in by default, nor can we earn our way in through our own goodness. In fact, all of the good things that we think we've done, all of the good things that we think belong already in our spiritual account, they actually account for nothing. They get us nowhere. Only by receiving Christ, only through a new birth, may we enter the kingdom. Now, just to be clear, we have really good reasons to believe that Nicodemus did, in fact, receive the new birth. We have to wait till John 19 to see that evidence. But it does appear that Nicodemus received and entered in. But for now, I just I want us to take a moment to thank the Lord. God, who did not see fit to simply give us or offer us a better life or an easier life or even a more religious way of life. But God in his grace has granted us a new life altogether, a new birth from God by the Spirit through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's thank him together. Father, I do ask that for myself. I ask it for us that in this moment we would not feel indifferent or neutral about what we've just seen, but that we would stand in awe of the grace that you have given, that from top to bottom, salvation is a miraculous work. Thank you, Lord, that we are not living perpetually in a cycle of working harder to do better, but that we are new creations in Christ, created, born again for his glory, both now and forever. And I pray, Father, that in any sense, if we're like Nicodemus, if we're confused, then, Lord, help us to, to dig deeper and to ask good questions and to study your word and to 
to pray and ask, Lord, for the revelation of your spirit and your truth. And Lord, where we're offended that perhaps our perception of religion, our, our way of thinking about us and our own goodness or our own potential, if, if we're offended by this idea of being born again, Father, that you would continue to push on the gas, continue to push as Jesus did with Nicodemus. Don't be surprised that I said you must be born again. Father, continue to show us our sinfulness, our great need, our inability to cause a new birth. That this is something, Lord, that you have delighted to do and that you delight to, uh, to do it in us, to work in us, Lord in ways that we cannot fully understand, but we know we could not manufacture. And so, Father, give us the, the joy of dropping everything so that we might have empty hands to receive the fullness of your Son, Jesus. Father, let this not be theory for us. Let's not just enjoy the reading today of John 3. But let it be that we would look to Jesus Christ as he is lifted up on the cross and that we would experience genuine transformation. Everything, Lord, is new. Let us live like we really believe it. We ask in Christ's awesome name. Amen.